Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Bhatia. Today, we welcome back Glassnode's lead on-chain analyst, Checkmate. Check, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks for having me back on, Nick. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, Check, we are excited to speak with you today. Today, we are recording on Thursday, January 18th uh, in the United States. That is Friday morning on January 19th for check in over in Australia. Uh, and I want to timestamp that for everyone as well with the Bitcoin price at approximately $41,000 as we speak. So just to give everyone a sense of where we are, we touched 49 in the moments right after the ETF launch. We've seen a almost a 20% pullback since then, not quite 20, but uh, almost a 20% pullback since then. So just to orient the viewer and the listener today, and Czech has a phenomenal chart pack for us from Glassnode. He puts out a great uh, weekly newsletter. So Czech will let you plug that, uh, uh, of course, at the end. But let's start it off with the futures versus option market size. I want to talk about each component of the market with Czech. We're going to talk about on-chain derivatives overall market outlook, what has happened on chain with the ETF backdrop. We're going to talk about all of that. So let's start with futures versus options. Sounds good. Yeah. So the, um, the, the market this year and, uh, you know, Bitcoiners love to debate whether the market is priced in, right? Whether it's the halving or ETFs, we're always discussing are things priced in. And to me, when I look at price action over the course of uh, this year, I mean, granted, it's only uh, we're halfway through January, but um, essentially we're flat year to date. So we're flat year to date after hitting 49,000, right? I think we opened at 42,000 or something like that. Um, we traded down to 40,000, right? On the, on the weekend after the ETFs. Um, and now we've more or less, I mean, we've traded down this morning, but we've kind of been oscillating around this 41, 42. We haven't really gone that far, but there's been a lot of volatility in between it. Now, what drives a lot of that volatility? Well, back in 2023, it was very much a quiet and trending uh, spot driven market. Spot still remains the prime, as far as I can tell, the primary driver. But since October last year, market structure started to shift in a, in a very meaningful way, both on chain but also in the derivative space. We saw new money flowing in, and leverage has started to build up in futures and options markets. And the reason why we look at both of these is that options are now actually as large as futures. This is a new development in 2023 and beyond. So options is a much more complicated instrument. Um, they have started to grow to be as big as futures. And of those futures, the dominant one is actually the CME and it has overtaken Binance. So the big takeaway from this is that leverage has crept back into the market. Um, it's not quite what I would call the driving factor like we saw during the 2021 bull market, but it is most definitely, we're seeing more of these deleveraging events and these flush outs. Um, so futures and options become much more important to track on a more regular basis. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you sign up. Now, River is a Bitcoin only exchange. We believe them to be the best in the business and they do not use a third-party custodian. They have their own multi-signature solution, a one-to-one -one situation. That means that there's no leverage going on. Whatever Bitcoin they purchase is held in this multi-signature solution. Zero fees on recurring purchase orders as well. River.com slash TBL. And 
let's also note that we got a headline in the last few days that the ETFs themselves that which have started trading will soon have single name options trading on those. So those pro will probably end up uh, contributing to your statistics, right? I mean, when you guys aggregate uh, all this option volume, you're aggregating it over Binance, over CME, which is an option on a futures contract. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, right? But the options on CME are options on the futures contract, not spot. So yes. you're going to be tracking everything, right? Yes. And I think um, one big takeaway the audience should have is that the Bitcoin market structure is about to get even more dynamic. And um, this makes our job as analysts so much fun because, you know, we've got on-chain data, which tells us about the spot and the self-custody market and the spot exchanges. You've got the, you know, strange enough traditional, sorry, the wrong word to use, but the classic uh, crypto, um, uh, you know, Bitcoin exchanges, the BitMEXs and the, and the Binances. And now you've got ETFs, which kind of straddle this line between spot because they are a source of spot demand and sale, but they're also suffering, well, suffering through the right word from this T plus three, right? This, this kind of settlement delay you have in traditional and, um, and then you're also going to have options and futures on those, uh, those markets. So it becomes a very dynamic landscape. And we really do have to not only absorb all of the information, but learn how they interact. And this makes our job uh, you know, very exciting and interesting and dynamic. One way people ask me, Jack, if uh, all of this institutional adoption or more, more of a framework market is going to dampen volatility. And I always tell them the same thing. You tell me and you tell us if you agree, which is that the reduction in volatility might not be observable to you at the naked eye level and at the emotional level. It might still feel that Bitcoin is as volatile as ever, but statistically on a look back, the realized volatility of Bitcoin is steadily declining. So would you agree with that characterization? Yeah, and, and and I would, and certainly based on the data that we see, in fact, there's a, a chart in the pack on um, implied volatility for the options space. And this is since May 2021, it's been in a significant downtrend. I mean, it used to be very typical for Bitcoin to trade at 100% implied volatility. Uh, it got down to 30%, so a third of where we were um, uh, around October. And since October, we have sprung higher, but there's also been this kind of influx of activity. We went from, you know, 26K to 45 in short order. You then had all of the uh, the volatility in and around the, the ETF launching and the speculation and all those things. So the question is, have we reversed and gone back to the mean of 100% volatility? Or is this simply a bounce up from a, a new regime of gradually lower volatility? Uh, there's also going to be a component of as these ETFs and the owners of them um, portfolio managers, financial planners, people are going to be rebalancing, right? Bitcoin may go from a half percent allocation to a 2% allocation. They've got to sell that back down to half a percent. It also may drop from a 1% to a you know half percent. They have to actually buy back in. So on both sides, you're going to get these seasonality components. We're going to see quarterly rebalancing. All these things are going to evolve the volatility profile. That's my big picture. Um, whatever the volatility profile was, I think in this new ETF world, because of the scale that they are likely to get to and just the, the type of money that's going to come into them, um, in my view, the volatility profile will evolve. So I'm certainly expecting it to change moving forward. It's fantastic perspective because from my world in treasuries, we 
have to think about what's going to happen on month end, what's going to happen at 12 p.m. Pacific time or 11 a.m. Pacific time as the index rebalances or releases its new updated durations at 2 p.m. Eastern. And all of these things which you're that we have experience with in the traditional world, some of them or many of them or all of them are coming to Bitcoin. It will introduce new dynamics around the calendar and around settlement. And we're lucky to have uh, you as an analyst looking at all these things very closely. Check, let's get into this next chart. Futures open interest one day percent change. You have a just a couple weeks here on, on the x-axis. Uh, so what we're showing is what has happened in 2024, heading into the ETF trading. And so walk us through the black line being the price and the orange line being the open interest here. Yes, so, um, uh, so my background is civil engineering and quite often the absolute value of things is much less important than the rates of change. Um, that's even more so uh, true in dynamic systems, right? Any kind of mechanical engineering, the rates of change are usually the thing that, that dominates. Um, and I have certainly in my experience found that that is uh, true in markets as well. Rates of change are usually more important. Um, it's often, yes, 5.5% interest rates are meaningful, but the rate from going to zero to five and a half is often far more important than the, uh, the actual absolute value. So when we're talking about futures in the open interest space, what this chart is basically looking at is how much the open interest has changed on a percentage basis. So it's basically saying, are we seeing a high values as a very large influx of new leverage? We've seen um, either the coin price has rallied and we've seen a whole bunch, you know, open interest climbs accordingly, or people are layering in more and more positions and actually building up more leverage in the system. You can also have deleveraging events where you basically flush out some of those. Um, so um, as I mentioned before, now that we're in this, you know, it, it's, we've seen this influx of new capital, leverage is starting to pick back up. So on the 3rd of January, we actually had a fairly substantial sell-off, um, uh, which you can see in the price chart. It was, yeah, I can't remember the exact uh, price level, 45 down to about 41 or something. Um, so it was a meaningful sell-off in very short order. That actually washed out quite a bit of leverage. And uh, we've just got here some simple, you know, plus or minus two standard deviations. And what we're looking for is just outliers, right? When did we see a statistically meaningful flush out? And as we can see in the lead up to the ETF, right, this is when speculation is kind of at its peak. Um, and then we had all the volatility around the SEC announcements and, you know, all those fun and games where Bitcoin drags the regulators into its world, which I thought was, uh, was quite poetic. But we saw multiple touches of that um, two standard deviation level. So um, volatility was highly likely. Lots of positions were getting put on. And, uh, you know, we got a, a sell-off over the weekend as a result. Yeah, and we can, I mean, we can assume that the, and every position, I think it's also important to remind people, every position has a long and a short side. So it's not that you had excessive longs. But what you have is longs that are entering the market and paying a higher and higher funding rate. We'll talk about funding rates at some point today, but the funding rate is the indication of the balance between longs and shorts. So as the funding rate rises, it's evidence that there are more longs trying to get into the market than shorts. So that's why they have to pay up for those positions. It makes the position more expensive to the long side, but it also means that when the long has to close, there is a cascading that can, there can be a cascading of price. And so 
we've seen Bitcoin stay in a relatively tight range. I think it's, I think it's uh, a good thing that we've basically seen it stay where it was and has been flat on the year, as you said. So um, the takeaway from that chart, uh, check it, what you're saying is that positions getting put on, you see that open interest spike uh, going into the going into the event. So uh, let's talk about funding rates now. So what happened in funding rates going into the event? What's happening? What happened after? And if you can even update us with what's happened in the last couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. So, so funding rates, as you mentioned, is if you've got a growth in open interest, it's it's on both sides, right? Because for every long, there's a short. So, um, seeing a buildup in leverage doesn't really give you a directional bias. Um, you can obviously look at price and say if we're rallying, it's probably more likely that people are willing to go long, but it it, it is actually balanced. So, technically, you could have a squeeze on both sides. So, how do you actually establish the directional bias of this market? And as you said, funding rate is essentially the perfect. Um, uh, instrument or metric for this, because what we're looking at is what is the delta between the futures price, right? Which is essentially people willing to use leverage. And the way I like to look at funding rates is it's essentially the interest rate you're paying for the privilege of taking on leverage. You can buy spot and be one X, or you can take on leverage, but you must pay an interest rate. And if lots of people want to go long, the longs will push the index price higher than the, sorry, futures price higher than the index and have to pay an interest rate accordingly. Now, often, again, rates of change and shifts in character are usually quite useful. So in the, the chart that you probably got up, that's showing you that in October, it was very um, uh, choppy, I would call it, around neutral. Um, funding rate didn't really have a net bias. People were kind of long and short. It was very low, kind of low volatility. We're just trading sideways. But that rally in October um, really aligns with a big phase shift in the market. And we've now seen it be persistently positive. And in the lead up to that third of um, third of January uh, deleveraging, you can see that funding rates actually got very, very positive. And that was telling you, hey, not only do you have an uptick in um, open interest, it's very, very long biased. And what that creates is an incentive for people to go short. The market makers who actually don't care which direction it's going because they're delta neutral, they're just capturing that funding rate um, with that cash and carry trade. So you do have a greater risk that those long traders will get washed out. Now we saw most of that leverage actually hasn't come back in following the um, uh, following that third of January deleveraging. That was the biggest one we've had thus far um, this year, but it has remained net positive. So we still do have a long bias. We still did get a couple of um, upticks in open interest, but of course that's kind of expected as you rally into the ETF. So in in a way, it was kind of an expected result. Um, and I also think that uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The fact that we've more or less traded sideways. Yes, with some volatility up and down, but we're kind of flat on the year. Um, and even though it's only been 20 odd days, it's telling you that there's there's both sides of the equation are in play. And we're still, we haven't had that 20% correction. In fact, I think that this is probably the deepest correction we've had since uh, the FTX lows. And that's only if you want to measure from that very brief 49,000 touch. So, um, you know, it could have dropped back a whole lot more. And I'm, I'm quite Im impressed actually with the, uh, the the resilience of price action thus far. We'll need a refresh on your drawdown chart that you provided with us last yeah. time. And I saw you I saw you tweeted it out um, in the last few weeks as well, reminding people that we haven't had that flush yet in this current uh, bull run. Check, before we go to the next chart, I think it might be of value to people to mechanically explain how a short position, or let's just call it a market maker, 
captures a 22% annualized return on a three-month cash and carry position using these markets. So if you can do just the basics, what is the who's the market player? What is one side of the trade? What is the other? What's the ARB? How do you close it and when? And how is that captured? Just the basics for people at home so they can understand how does that trade work? Absolutely. No, I think this is a really, really important dynamic. So um, in the traditional futures world, there's uh, what we call calendar expiring futures. So these are a contract that will expire, let's just say on December, 2024. Now um, in traditional commodities, let's say like oil, there is a cost to the storage of that. You know, if you want to buy a barrel of oil in January and sell it to someone in December, you've got a storage cost to deal with it because it's physical. So in that instance, generally speaking, that storage cost gets baked into the futures curve. So people will pay a slight premium to, to lock in a price of oil. The producer is happy to sell that in the future. And over time, the spot price and the futures price will converge and eventually close out. So if you're a producer of oil, you want to sell it, somebody else can be a speculator and they can say, well, there's a premium of, let's just say 10% between January and December. I could actually buy spot and I could in the, in the futures market and then I could sell the future and over time those two will converge. And whatever premium you locked in, that's what's called the cash and carry trade. And you're essentially, you don't mind if it goes, if the price goes up or down because you own the underlying as the future moves, so too does the spot market, but they will eventually close that gap. Now in the world of Bitcoin, it's slightly different because it doesn't have, it's digital. It doesn't have a storage cost, right? The storage cost is actually quite, quite small. It's not the same as a barrel of oil. So we've actually moved towards a different instrument that BitMEX actually pioneered called the perpetual swap, which is where funding rates come into it. Now we do still have calendar futures, um, but the, the um, perpetual swaps uses that funding rate. It's a lot more volatile and dynamic. So it's the exact same trade, a short seller. Let's say there's lots of people who want to be leveraged long and they're paying that interest rate to be long. A short seller market maker can essentially short the futures and go long the spot underlying. So again, as both of those prices move, they're delta neutral, but they're capturing that funding rate. So they've essentially locked in that premium. The big difference is that it's gonna, their, their premium will shift and move because the contracts never expire. It's a much more dynamic trade. The exact same principles still apply, but the income rate or that yield is a, is a volatile instrument rather than locking in a 5% on the, the calendar futures and just it's a time game at that point in time. So anyway, just to really summarize, sorry, it's um, buying spot. So you're long the underlying selling the future, which is at a premium and allowing those two to converge, whether in, in perpetual swaps or calendar futures. And in, in the oil example, they do converge because your futures contract expires. You're long the underlying. So you have physical oil. When the futures contract expires, the contract that you sign says, deliver me the oil. So you hand over the oil. So whatever you locked in at the beginning of that trade, what you sold higher than what you bought, it's yours. It's yours. And it the trade ends when you hand over the oil. In Bitcoin, it doesn't work like that because the perpetual doesn't have the delivery. So when you go short the futures and long the underlying, you don't have the guaranteed ARB. Rather, you're in a position that can go uh, for you or against you. However, when the when the yield is high on that trade, meaning that the futures price is much higher than the spot price, 
it attracts those shorts into the market to capture that yield and thus potentially driving it back down. And that's the arbitrage. So Bitcoin is, is very dynamic. I'm loving this conversation today because, you know, check, we do a lot of episodes at TBL. We will cover the humanitarian side of Bitcoin. We'll cover money markets. We'll cover global macro. We'll cover Bitcoin on chain. We haven't done a lot of these deep market infrastructure and derivatives shows. And so I think that this is going to maybe spark some interest in people to understand really how advanced the Bitcoin asset class is mm. becoming. They might actually be shocked that it has all these futures contracts and options contracts, perpetual futures, what that even means. There's a whole Bitcoin financial theory here, uh, native um, that's, financial that's theory. That's absolutely true. And, and it's actually something I was talking about this morning. Um, the, the the Bitcoin, I mean, BitMEX pioneered the perpetual swap, and I guarantee that we will see perpetual swaps in traditional finance within the next couple of years, because it is such a brilliant invention. And the reason that they had to create it, I mean, same as if you look at any of the exchanges in the, in the Bitcoin space, they've had to develop their own custody, clearinghouses, settlement, exchange infrastructure, because there is no central clearinghouse for these assets. They have to do it all themselves. So it's actually quite remarkable the the amount of entrepreneurship that's gone into building the exchange infrastructure, both derivatives and uh, and spot. Um, it really is quite quite remarkable. So um, in that regard, that's that's why the likes of Coinbase and Binance have the leads that they do because they've built such enormous infrastructure um, that is pioneering, and you know they've they've done it on their own back um, and on their own dime. So that's been a, a very impressive thing, and I, I strongly expect perpetual swaps will show up in the traditional finance world before long. And people have been working on these things for a very long time. If you think about when Ledger X first had its options contracts go live, I mean, we're talking about half a decade ago already. Uh, I don't have the exact year there, but we, this is something that has been in the works for a long time. Check, let's go to the next chart. Options uh, at the money implied fall from Darabit. So what are we looking at here? Uh, it's about a one-year chart here that you have for us and definitely a move higher um, in vol in, uh, basically off of that court case, appellate yes. court case overturn where grayscale beat the sec and it was clear we would get these launches. Yes. And that's the thing, right? I mean, with, with the evolving options infrastructure and Deribit is, uh, certainly the largest player, I th you know, 90 odd percent plus in terms of, uh, open interest and volume. So they really are the primary venue where a lot of these options are trading. And um, what we have seen is these different character shifts in volatility. We mentioned before that we've had this long scale downtrend um, and we, you know, we hit 30% and it has since, so not only did it um, you know, fall by, by uh, you know, get, get down to a third over the course of a couple of years, it then very quickly spiked up you know, three, three times. Um, the other thing we can start to do is as these option markets start to get deeper, uh, and I mentioned before that options open interest is now as big as the futures market. So, Generally speaking, options are a more sophisticated instrument. Um, they provide far greater strategy and hedging options. Um, institutions prefer to use them because they can create much more complex um, structured products and strategies. So, you know, it, it's very uncommon to, you know, talk to the average punter and he's, he's, you know, playing around in options. They are just a more sophisticated instrument. And it really speaks to a maturation of the space. And as these markets deepen, 
we can start to pull more information because options are just packed full of information, right? Because you've got people doing more complex strategies. You've got the call side and the put side. We can start to extract far better probabilities about what's going on. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, how does the market price things in? We get the, you know, initially it's been that these ETFs would never get approved. And then there was the court case between Grayscale and the SEC. And then we started getting more and more of this coverage of how, you know, more and more meetings between the issuers. And over time, the probability started to favor, hey, it actually looks like these things are going to go live. And then I think it really is quite remarkable that even though we had all the volatility year to date, we're pretty much flat. And to me, that shows the market priced it to perfection, arguably speaking, right? The big question is for how long, right? Because how long is it actually priced in for? I would argue that once you start, once the things, things start trading, we just can't estimate demand. So um, price to perfection up until the event. And now it's, you know, now it's a, a question mark, but certainly options markets now providers and futures a lot more information to really dissect what are the probabilities in the space. And it doesn't, just because we have all these vehicles doesn't mean dampened volatility. It actually, if you look at the chart, it's the opposite where we had dampened volatility up until the court decision, then volatility started to spike as participants come into the market and start putting on trades. That's what it comes down to. Quick sidebar here. Do you think publicly traded miners are going to, or are employing these options? Are they a core user? Are they a user here? Or are these more just financial market participants trying to make markets and arbitrage? That's a really, really good question. I actually don't have the answer for it, but um, from a from a high level, let's talk about the mechanics of why options are actually fantastic for miners. Because miners, like the oil producer from before, they know that they are going to have Bitcoin coming in the future. So what there's, you know, they could employ all sorts of strategies and actually sell covered calls. They know they're going to have the spot Bitcoin. What they can essentially do, let's say price is trading at 42,000, they may well sell covered calls at 50,000 and just lock in that premium. If Bitcoin doesn't go and it expires above 50,000, they keep the spot Bitcoin and they sell the next call option at 50. So in that instance, when the price does rally, they didn't get 42,000 for it, they got 50,000 and they got a premium between now and then. So options can actually provide them with a source of income to help pay off. And what I do think is gonna happen there was a big narrative in the last cycle that now that miners are publicly traded companies and they've got access to U.S. capital markets, that they'll be more able to survive. And, you know, th th there was a big argument that maybe the, the, you know, the crazy days of early mining was done. We kind of saw that, but not really. We still had a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of uh, poor allocation of capital. Um, miners really went through a pretty tough season last, um, last cycle. I think that we're going to see that start to actually move closer towards that real financialization. Um, you know, some miners really are just taking the view that, yes, we mine Bitcoin, but we're actually an energy trader. Um, we use Bitcoin as like a source of our revenue, but essentially we're not Bitcoin long. Some miners go the other path and say we actually are kind of like a semi ETF. I would argue that trade may be probably not going to play out as well. Um, I would think that the miners that go down the path of saying we are a financial institution, we buy power, we mine Bitcoin, and we use derivatives to actually um, earn the greatest return for shareholders. I think they're the ones that are going to probably perform the best um, and really look at it from that energy perspective. Um, and Bitcoin is just a part of their revenue. I think they're going to go um, uh, much better off than miners who try to be the, the hodl strategy in, by that regard. 
uh, we're definitely going to see Bitcoin mining giants. We're going to see technology companies institute Bitcoin mining operations. We're going to see energy companies institute Bitcoin mining operations because it is an energy arbitrage. That is what we've had the CEO of Marathon. We've had the CEO of Riot on this show. They, they are telling us the same thing. It's an energy arbitrage and it's global and the commodity itself is global and the barriers to entry are almost nil if you have a little bit of capital and a jurisdiction with even the most modest green light. So just fascinating stuff from this asset class. So really, uh, this episode is more and more just becoming about the maturation of Bitcoin as an asset class. Check. It really feels that way, doesn't it? It feels like we have, um, uh, I was talking with uh, CK the other day, CK Snarks from uh, Human Rights Foundation. And uh, one of the topics that we talked about is how we've gone, Bitcoin's gone from adolescent to adult. I think the, the ETF is probably that line in the sand where we, we are in a much more mature world and it's only going to accelerate from here. So I fully agree with that. Shout out to CK. Uh, Long-term holder NUPL. Can you tell us what this chart is all about? Yes. So now transitioning over to, uh, you know, my favorite stuff, which is the on-chain world. Um, as we, so what this chart is, NUPL stands for net unrealized profit and loss. So one of the really powerful parts of on-chain analytics is we can price stamp coins. Now, what that allows us to do is we can look at what we call cohorts, in this case, long-term holders. These are people who have held their coins for at least five months. So we just use that as a cross-section, show us people who've been in the market long enough that they've seen some volatility. Um, Generally speaking, this cohort is active around market extremes. They're typically more active as we break cycle all-time highs, where they really start to sell and take meaningful profit. They're, they're active down near cycle bottoms, where even the strongest of hands capitulate and panic, um, like FTX. And what this metric is showing is all the coins that they hold, what is the average unrealized or paper gain or loss? Um, we have another uh, equivalent to this, which is SOPA, which essentially plots out their spent, how much they're actually locking in, realized profit and loss. We'll come to that later on. But what this chart is doing, it's a really nice cyclicality. You can see that typically we get to these extremes with long-term holders, and they tend to be cycle inflection points. Now, along the way, there are points in time where people see, you know, um, here we hit a level of 55 or 55%. That means that the average long-term holder, someone who's been in the market for at least five months, is holding 55% paper gains on average. Now, of course, there's gonna be some people who are better off and worse off, but the average is 55%. And 2022 was a pretty nasty year, right? Very, very hard to make money in 2022. 2023 was a great year. And now that we're getting into that 55% level, there are gonna be some, and you've got the ETF, it's like a market event you've kind of got this incentive for people to maybe take some chips off the table. And, you know, this probably doesn't apply to the hodlers, but it probably does apply to some of the trading funds, right? People who got in and, you know, they have a uh, um, LPs they need to look after. It, it, th these are kind of funds who are likely to take some chips off the table. Um, and some people are just going to, you know, 55% up is, is, is a good number for, uh, for most markets. Now, the reason why we look at this number is that in previous cycles, 2012, 2016, 2019, um, and even 2020, these were all levels where the market found pause. It is, you know, the, the, the uptrend remained intact over the, uh, the longer term, but it was that first point where a 30 or a 40 or maybe a 50% correction starts to creep in as people take profits. And there's usually some kind of an event, but 
all these things just tend to correlate with an incentive. There's like an, in, an inbuilt incentive in people to just take some chips off the table when they're up this much. And for the viewers who are familiar with TBL's coverage of on-chain, we use MVRV, which is a market value to realize value ratio. The underlying of the R of that ratio realized is part of this metric that Check is using here. Uh, we're looking at, in this case, we're looking at holders five months and, and, and longer. So there's an adjustment to the realized component here. But what what he's looking at and what we look at, it's the same type of dynamic, which is where is the price today relative to the on-chain cost basis of the participants in the market? And in that way, we're able to measure profit or loss and the relative positions of these participants. And check if you just allow me real quick, the there's a lot of hype in Bitcoin around, you know, these things called God candles, this idea that we are and that we do have single days where Bitcoin will go up 20% in price. It is uh, consistent with Bitcoin's history and it will probably happen again. It just, it just will. So, but people also then can confuse that with this idea that Bitcoin can go straight up or that anything can go straight up. And it just doesn't because at any given price, there is one participant in the market, at least one that says, I'm, I'm cashing out or this is my level. And so what check is talking about with the ETF event, the event means that for either three months, six months, two years, or four years, you had somebody that said, I'm going long because I think we're going to get an ETF approval. They might have gone long at 60, they might have gone long at 20, or they might have got a, gone long at 41. And when they see the price hit 41 or 48, they say, that's it for me, I'm out. And that keeps a lid on prices. That's just a natural supply response and basic econ 101. So remember that there are there's a cost basis to every position and some of those positions will sell at any level rat that's ratcheting higher. And so, um, check, I'll let you respond before we go to the next chart here. Yeah. And I think, uh, no, that, that, that's absolutely correct. And the reason why we're looking at long-term holders here is that these are the people who are patient. They're the people who got in and waited. And, uh, when I mentioned before, they're typically more active as we break cycle all time highs. That is quite often because they know that the influx of demand is there and, um, there's a bit of a framework. So all the charts we're about to, to follow go through this framework. Um, the first question is, who do I care? Which cohort, short or long-term holders? They both are active. But which one is more dominant at the particular market structure? In this instance, we've got an ETF. We've had a fantastic year. Long-term holders, they're probably going to be more relevant at this point in time. The next question is, what is their incentive right now? Are they in a lot of profit? Are they in a lot of loss? If they're not, if they're kind of at break even, you can assume they might not do very much. If they're in a meaningful amount of profit that historically looks like they've taken profits in the past, you go, okay, my next question is, are they actually doing anything about it? And you'll see that the next few charts, I've essentially said long-term holders matter because we're at a, a, an event. Um, they're in a meaningful amount of profit, which in the past has triggered profit taking. Is that taking place? 
right? And that's and you kind of step through and just ask these next and then and then and you just follow these questions down. And that's a great that, that's essentially how I run a lot of my analysis in the on-chain space. Start with your cohort, look at their incentive structure and see whether they acted on it. And if you follow those down, you can start to build a framework for what people are doing at all these different groups. So we have the long short term holder threshold chart up here now. So in red, it's the short-term holders supply. And in blue, we have the long-term holder supply. And that supply, keep in mind, is denominated in total Bitcoin. So uh, on, the, on the right side of the Y-axis here, long-term holders, holder supply uh, in the, in the uh, right around 15 million Bitcoin. And the short-term holder supply on the left-hand side of the Y-axis which about is marked by, by red. I'm sorry. It's about 2.3 million for about, short-term holders. About 2.3. So, so t walk us through what these numbers mean to you. What is the takeaway here? Yes. So, so now that we've established that they're in a meaningful amount of unrealized profit, the question is, are they starting to take it? Now, what's important to note here is that um, when we look at long-term and short-term supply at Glassnode, long-term holder supply plus short-term supply plus exchanges will equal circulate, circulating. Now, exchanges does not include the likes of GBTC right, and, and other ETF-style products. It's the Coinbase's, the Binance, the, the Bitstamps. So what we're looking at here is essentially exchanges are not included in this, but GBTC and all the ETFs will be. Now, those GBTC coins are going to account for a fairly substantial chunk of these long-term holder supply that, that are moving. Um, as you noted, we got up to just shy of 15 million, which is a well and truly all-time high for long-term supply. The flip side of that means that short-term supply is effectively at all-time lows. So let's let's take a step back. What does that mean? Coins that just simply aren't moving are as populous as they've ever been. And on a percentage basis, like 76% of the circulating supply um, hasn't moved in five months. So big picture, zoomed out, multi-month, multi- Pause there, check. I, let, I, let's say that one more time. Bitcoin, there's 19 and a half million Bitcoin out there. There's 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be. That means there's one and a half million to mine over the next century plus. Most, it's 93%, okay? 93% of Bitcoin that will ever exist are in existence. Of, the, of that, so of the 19.5 million, three quarters of the coins have not moved in six plus months, right? Is the, is the five threshold? Five months, yep. Five months. Three and quarters statistically of are very unlikely to spend as a result. And if you look at the chart here, which we have, the blue line is at an all-time high or just off of it, right, as we have GPTC selling. So one more thing to remind people, when ETFs start tucking away their coins, it goes into the blue line, right? Check, I mean, in a year, in two years' time, Correct. the blue line will have the ETF. But this is a point that I want people to understand. The ETF shareholders are going to be hodlers. That money is tucked away. It's not going to be in the red line. So now with that set up, now tell us what, what the takeaway is with the, sh with the red line being basically at the all-time lows. Yes. So um, uh, we say effectively all-time lows because technically it had to grow from zero to something, but you have to go back to like 2010 to find levels. So effectively, short-term holder supply is bouncing off all-time low, um, about 2.3 million. The remainder, I think it's also about 2.3 million is what we have on our exchange clusters. So all in all, if we if we actually group together, I can't remember, we may have talked about this on the last episode. 
If you take short-term supply plus exchanges, glue them together, you've got something on the order of about 4.6 million Bitcoin. That as a percentage of that 19.6 is all-time low. So we have, I mean, effectively the tightest the supply has ever been on a relative basis. Um, now, of course, as you mentioned, coins that go into the ETF, technically they can be long-term holder supply, but they can still trade off-chain in the exchanges. So again, these become some of these dynamics. It's likely that we'll start to say, well, do we put the ETFs into these uh, the into the exchange bucket and separate them out? There's all sorts of ways we can look at it. But the big picture takeaway, I think, for people to have, yes, we have some long-term holder coins being spent. Some of those, a reasonable chunk will be GBTC. Another reasonable chunk will be the hodlers that we mentioned before. Some people are going to take some chips off the table. So the, the answer to the, the, the question is, are long-term holders actually spending? The answer is, Yes, but in context, we're still pretty much at all-time high. So yes, but with a caveat of it's not groundbreaking, earth-shattering news. It's kind of an expected result. It's why we would bump our head as a market and find a bit of a ceiling. But it's not like, all right, that's it. Party's over. Time, time to walk out. The long-term holders, for the most part, are saying, well, cool, ETF. What comes next? And think about uh, maybe for people that have uh, some historical sense for Bitcoin, just think about the... China mining ban and the the dramatic fall in hash rate. It it if you look at that now, that it's a blip on the radar, and hash rate is uh two over two x what we were before the China ban, as we're in the five hundred exahash range in total hash rate on the network. Uh, but this this grayscale dynamic is going to take weeks to chew through okay and it's going to affect the volume numbers of every new etf it's going to affect the aum of the new etfs so we don't know whether we should be looking at net numbers gross numbers or how to just how to factor in this gptc uh situation but from an on-chain perspective you have to make your own adjustments as well as gptc grayscale is selling their bitcoin for the first time in several years so it's going to affect your charts. And so it's just going to take time for the market to chew through this on the metric side, on the supply and demand side, on the ETF AUM side, um, and with your on-chain metrics uh, as well. Check the next, uh, the next chart here is revived supply Z-score. So it's a very interesting chart. Uh, my, my understanding is that when revived supply z-score goes north of zero meaning into positive territory what you're seeing is old coins that are being spent for the first time in many years so what's the threshold there and what's the big takeaway correct so now that we're seeing uh, long-term holder supply come off its all-time high and we know that long-term holders are in a fairly modest amount of profit and there's the gbtc mechanics um the next check you know is it statistically significant right and in those, in those statistically significant events, are we likely to find a bit of resistance, right? Trying to just frame up the problem. Um, and you're right, we're basically using a Z-score here, and this is basically a normalization technique. Um, it's basically plotting out how many standard deviations are we from some average. And in this case, I've opted to use actually a two-year window. Um, so we're looking at coins older than one year. So I wanna see coins that are older than one year. And over the last two years, that's the average, right? What is the average number of coins on any particular day? Now show me how much we've deviated away from that mean. So why did I choose two, a two-year window? 
because if we let, let's just for argument's sake, and I think it's you know probably a good good case to make, we're probably in a bull market. Do I want to compare our current environment? If I'm looking for changes, do I want to compare it to a bull and a bear, which will be a four year cycle? I actually want to compare it to the last two years. I want to see the transition out of the bear, and I want to see statistically large spending relative to that bear. Now, in a year's time, when we're coming up to the cycle top, I want to see has the spending increased relative to the early bull, right? As we come into the peak of that bull market, I want to see are we getting even more spending relative to the early bull? I don't care so much about the bear. So I use this two-year window because it's like, show me rates of change. Show me when the cycle is starting to shift and the character is changing. And what you can see in this chart is the uh, the 2021 bull market stands out like a sore thumb. Um, huge amounts of old coins coming back to life. And strangely enough, a lot of those were going into GBTC for the first time. Um, and here we are, we've had three spikes since uh, since the FTX collapse. One was when FTX collapsed, uh, a lot of panic. We saw it again in uh, August, which essentially preceded a sell-off from 26 to 29,000. And then we've had another one in the speculation up to the ETF. So are people taking some chips off the table? The answer is yes, because this actually started happening before GBTC was able to start uh, releasing those coins. So we do have a case to say that those long-term holders, some people took ships off the table. They used the demand inflow of the ETF um, to, to essentially uh, take exit liquidity. And of course, markets will kind of digest and work through this. And in three months' time, we look back and see how it actually plays out. And we'll, we'll keep having you back check so that we can we can understand these dynamics as they move through time. But Bitcoin does cycle. And so it won't be that long before you're on this show talking to us about late stage bull market dynamics. Yes. People don't realize how quickly that can that can come. And so right now we are in early to mid stage bull market dynamics. I don't know if you want to characterize it as characterize yep. as early or mid. I don't know if it matters. And the but, way that I've been uh, yeah. characterizing it is um, FTX was our cycle low. Um, from FTX, so let's just say for argument's sake, the majority of 2023 up until about October um, is what I was calling the uncertain recovery. There's a lot of PTSD, a lot of concern that, you know, and you saw it, it was these kind of like slow grinding. There weren't that many like ripping rallies. A um, lot of people had bear market PTSD. As we broke through 30,000 in October, new money started to come in. Before that, it was just the hodlers. There was very, very little new money. Profits started getting taken. The market went from, you know, 26 to 45 in very short order. I think that break in October above 30,000, that's where we moved from the uncertain recovery to what I'm currently calling the enthusiastic bull. Um, enthusiastic bull previous times is 2016, right? It's a kind of a slow, steady grind, lots of 30, 40% corrections, but a nice uptrend. Um, you could argue 2019 and 2020, early 2020 were kind of that phase as well. Um, with a bit of a kind of inflection because you had 2019 that went up too fast, too quickly. You had March 2020, which went down too fast, too quickly. So they kind of average each other out. Uh, we're very much in that kind of environment. There is a phase usually breaking all-time highs where I think we transition into what's called the euphoric bull. And this is when market structure changes significantly. Long-term holders start to spend. Um, Bitcoin is on every TV channel. You can start hearing about it from your Uber driver. That's when things really start to get, you know, both exciting, but also the longer that goes, the more probable the market is to be oversaturated. And you get rather than a maximum supply held by the hodlers, where we 
more or less are today, you have the inverse. The maximum amount of coins are held by brand new investors who buy the top for the first time. Um, and you know, essentially that's a market that's oversaturated by softer hands and that generally results in a bear. Let's hope that we don't get those text messages from our friends uh, for another several, several months. Uh, so I've got hey, none so far, so yeah. there's an anecdote for I'm that. also at zero check, so we're, we're right there and we can measure we can measure the bull market with uh, on-chain metrics via Glassnode and your expertise or via the text message indicator. Um, I'm Absolutely. sure both will work uh, ironically uh, equally. So um, um, that's what behavior is all about. And we've talked about this many times. You love your job because you are analyzing behavior and you're able to diagnose Bitcoin's market behavior. I know that's why you love your job. Let's land the plane for the viewer here. Check with the last one. Realized profit, uh, seven-day moving average, um, denominated in USD. So you have a you have a chart here spanning about seven years, seven eight years. So what are we looking at um, relative today relative to 2017 and 2021? Yes. Yeah, so realized profit. This is kind of bringing that whole story together. We've looked at their supply. We've looked at their incentive. Um, we've the question is. Where are those coins coming from? And what do I mean by that? Are they selling coins from, you know, at 41, they're selling at 42? Are they selling coins from $500? Um, and realized profit is really one of the most powerful metrics. Between realized profit and realized loss, they really are super, super informative. If someone buys a coin at $10,000 and then sells it to somebody else at $40,000, they've locked in a $30,000 profit times whatever their coin volume is. They initially invested 10,000, right? Times coin volume. Somebody else had to come in with an additional 30,000. So realize profit going higher means two things. It means that somebody is taking money off the table, but somebody else brought in more money. It's a capital inflow to the industry. Now, loss is exactly the opposite, right? Someone buys the top and sells the bottom. They've had capital destruction. Um, so when you net these things out and you do a big sum of all the profit minus all the loss, you get the realized cap, which is the on-chain market cap, right? And that is really the aggregate capital flow into Bitcoin. So when I'm looking at this chart here, I'm seeing that there is a meaningful uptick. And October, again, was that transition point. New money started coming in in a very meaningful fashion. It also means people are taking profits. So a little bit of realized profit is great because it means there's capital inflow. Um, you see people making money in a bull market, right? That's not typical of bear market behavior. So bull markets require profits be taken. It shows new money's coming in, but how much is too much, right? Because at some point that sell side pressure will overwhelm the inflowing demand. And this is what on-chain is all about. It's trying to find where is that sweet spot between new demand coming in and the people taking money off the table. Um, so look, the comparison is more so just to give a bit of a sense of scale, but um, the big observations, we've seen an uptick since October that really was a phase shift in uh, you know um, uncertain recovery into enthusiastic bull. We're at levels that are similar to the 2017 top. Now we have to remember that we're substantially higher in terms of price now. So that's actually, you know, we're only just at the level that we were $20,000 the last time we hit that. So the amount of coin volume is still quite small, speaks to that long-term holder supply chart. Um, but you can also compare, you know, we're, we're still about a, um, a fourth of where we were at the all-time high in, uh, in January and February. So it's meaningful, but it's also not earth-shatteringly big. So I think that's the big takeaway, right? It's expected to see consolidation here. It's expected to see some kind of a pullback. 
we haven't really had many this um, um, since the FTX lows. So in many ways, a pullback would be very healthy. It just reminds people that the market doesn't just go down. And I think that's a really important uh, takeaway I've certainly got from my time in markets. Markets must go down to go up and they must go up to go down. They just they need these refreshes and these breaks and to remind people that it's not all smooth sailing because if it just goes up, people keep putting on leverage, funding rates go higher and you end up with a disaster. So in many ways, corrections and bumping ahead and finding resistance is a very, very healthy sign. Um, the more corrections we have, generally speaking, the healthier the bull market is. Um, so, you know, to me, I'm certainly expecting some kind of a consolidation here. And there's a lot of evidence here to say that uh, we, we may have one. Um, but the flip side is, if the market just keeps going, it's telling you that, you know, $1.3 billion a day in realized profit is not enough to cap the market. That means that that's your inflowing demand. There's not enough supply. So it's that nice measurement to a counterbalance. Checkmate, lead on-chain analyst at Glassnode, visiting us today from Australia. A fascinating conversation and highly valuable from the educational side, explaining to people some of the more important on-chain metrics that you're watching, why on-chain matters, and what we should be looking for from Bitcoin and its price going forward. If you're not fascinated by some of these charts and the way that Bitcoin buyers behavior cycles through the, the various stages of Bitcoin's history, um, then I'm not sure that you're really interested in Bitcoin markets. Uh, and that's fine for some that are more interested in the technology side, but this is definitely a markets-centric research provider at the Bitcoin layer. So we're really thrilled to have uh, Checkmate Check. Tell people where they can find your excellent work. Yeah, thanks for having me on, mate. It's always a, always a pleasure and always good fun. Um, we, we've got two flagship um, uh, products in terms of our analysis and research. Um, obviously, the primary thing we have at Glassnode is we have all this data, right? And um, what my job has been is to explore it, find out how we describe the Bitcoin performance, how we describe market structure, and using this new paradigm of on-chain data. Um, so, you know, uh, there's been two forcing functions for me and my team to really explore this. The first one is our newsletter, The Week on Chain. Um, so that comes out on Tuesdays. Um, and that's usually, you know, something like a, a, a five to, to eight minute read. Um, you know, something in the order of about 10 charts and just describes this kind of framework of how to think about market events um, that happened over the previous week. We then have a YouTube channel as well, which you'll find it uh, at Glassnode on YouTube, which is essentially a video version of it. Um, it's me going through and adding a bit more color and flavor and sometimes some uh, explainers on how we actually use the tools at Glassnode to explore the phenomena in the market. So it's a, it's a fascinating experiment and it's been a, a great learning curve for, for me and my team. With Checkmate from Glassnode, I'm Nick Batia. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out at river.com slash TBL for up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. River is a Bitcoin only exchange. That means there is no confusion when you go there. Send your money to the exchange, buy Bitcoin and withdraw it via Lightning Network like that. River.com slash TBL for a special offer.